Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy this story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. So I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Kiane Matatasipu. Kiane is a journalist, photographer, artist, and social activist. She's been a storyteller for as long as she can remember. Kiani created the platform Nuku, through which shares the stories of 100 Indigenous female changemakers through audio podcasts, photography, videography, books, art, and live events. And it's well worth following if you haven't checked it out before. Kiani has also been actively involved at Ihu Mato and the land protests there over the years, and I look forward to also hearing more about that today. Kia ora, Kiani, and thanks very much for joining me today. Kia ora, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So the first question that I'd love to ask you will take you a little way back to maybe when you were a child or perhaps even a teenager. What were you thinking about when you were thinking about your career at that stage? When I was in primary school, I really wanted to be a firefighter. (laughs) And I don't know why, but that was on my top like three lists of careers to have. And then as I transitioned into my older years, into high school, I was thinking that I wanted to be an architect because I really loved beautifully built and designed buildings and homes, but I was really terrible at maths. So that was never going to be an option for me. I was also thinking about like an outdoor ed career. So I was never good at sports, but I love the outdoors and I loved the idea of being able to work and like teach, I suppose, in and around and around our outdoors, kayaking, high ropes, all that sort of stuff. And then I didn't do any of those things. And I went went to university and studied communications. And my first job was in journalism. Well, my first real job. (laughs) Okay. Great. And I love that a real variety there in terms of what you were interested in when you were younger, firefighter, architect, outdoor education, fantastic different roles. And then what then led you to study communications? Well, I guess for me, it was a natural progression of where my strengths were. I'm very creative. I was very much a communicator. I loved English and social studies. I was doing storytelling from as young as I can remember. And that came in all different forms. So I would write my own books and make up my own stories and act them out. I would also pretend to be a newsreader in my family. So we'd have family events or whanau get-togethers and I'd be sitting there reading the news and signing off. It's Kiani from Te Karere and all of these sorts of things. So I think it was really a natural progression for me and where my skill set lied, where my strengths were. And then my grandmother said to me, oh, I think you, I think you would um, be great as a journalist. And I really hate people telling me what to do um, or telling me what I should 
do. And so I really didn't want to be a journalist because she had suggested it. But actually it was the perfect career choice and the perfect thing to study for me because as I said, it was just who I was and who I always had been. It was very much a natural thing for me to step into that space. Sometimes those people who love us know us best, but we don't always listen to their advice. And you talked about that kind of journalism being your first proper job, I guess. But tell me, what were your actual kind of first jobs, the first kind of bits and pieces of um, work that you were, were doing? So I was really lucky to grow up in a family that did quite diverse things. My auntie was a hairdresser, so my mum's sister, and she owned her own hair salon. And so one of my first jobs was sweeping the floors at the hair salon. And then I progressed to washing hair. And then I was able to put on colours and and I was never allowed to cut because I was (laughs) never properly trained. Um, So I was never allowed to cut and I was never allowed to do perms and those sorts of things. But I could do everything else. And I learned so much from that first job or those early years of working. And I say that with quote marks because I got to meet so many different people. I learned how to speak to different people. I learned all about customer service. I learned how to build a rapport with people that you don't know and quite quickly. I also learned that if you didn't go to work and, and sweep the floor, you didn't get paid your lunch, which is how my auntie sort of paid us back then. But I learned so much in that space. It was really valuable life lessons that came with that as well. My mother has worked in early childhood. <clears throat> Excuse me. My mother has worked in early childhood her entire career. And so when I was in my later high school years and my university years, I would go and relieve teach at her preschool. And so I got to work with children. I got to set programs for the day. I got to uh, do what they call mat time, but that's sort of a focused learning time for the children. And so I really got to experience setting a curriculum, I suppose, for children at that very young age. And I got to learn all about parenting in a way because I had to change nappies and feed kids and get them out of dirty clothes and, and all of that sort of stuff. So that was another really great space to learn. And then my other job, which none of these jobs, well, some of them were sort of paid, none of them really proper jobs. Another one was with my grandfather on the marae. And that was very much about that he would go and set the marae up for groups that would come. And so I'd go and help him set up the marae, help him clean up afterwards, help him change light bulbs, sit in porphyry with him. And while that wasn't a job per se, it was very much still about learning hard work, showing up on time, customer service again, working with people, and all of those skills that I learned just being in and around my family and the work that they did. Wonderful. And what I love there is how you talked about almost all those skills that you learned from those different roles and how useful they were to learn at an early age. And I can imagine now how you're still applying them in in your career today. Yeah, most definitely, especially when it comes to how you communicate with people, how you engage with people, how you approach your work. My grandfather used to always say, do it properly or don't do it at all. And so I still carry that with me in my the work that I do today. If I'm going to say yes to a client or if I'm going to commit myself to something, I've got to do it all the way, 100%. Otherwise, don't do it at all. And so really great life lessons, but really great work ethics that I learned uh, in those earlier jobs. Wonderful. And then tell me then you said after doing your, after studying communications at uni, you went on to be a journalist. So what kind of, I guess, the highlights, but also some of the challenges of those first few years of your career? 
So I went straight out of uni and into a full-time job with Mana Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was the leading Māori magazine in New Zealand. And this particular team at Mana was tiny. There was three of us. And so everything I learned at uni was almost worthless because I had gone into this team of three where I had to learn and understand and know so much more about magazine production, about uh, advertising, about layouts about all these things you don't actually learn at university and um, it was fabulous it was the best education that I could have ever had and I got to cover some amazing stories meet some amazing people and build some really great skills within the journalism space as well as the magazine production space that then helped me in the next part of my career from money magazine I was poached (laughs) to go to Specific Magazine, and that was a Māori and Pacifica magazine that had an international reach. And I was the deputy editor. And not long after my joining the team, the editor was actually made redundant. And so I had taken on, in in essence, an editor-type role as the deputy editor. And I was only 25. And I was doing so much more with Specific Magazine outside of journalism. So yes, I was still interviewing and telling stories and and taking photos, which I'd started doing at Money Magazine. Um, But I was also selling advertising and doing flat plan layouts and working directly with the designer and going to networking events and all of these other things that actually help give you the skills to do more than just write, I suppose. In those years, my highlights were some of the people that I got to meet and interview. So I was part of the first interview with the Māori King Itu Heitia. I uh, got to be part of uh, one of the interviews and, and photographed Willie Apiata when he came back and received his VC medal and got to experience what it was like to be inside the SAS building and have a telephone there that had a green button and a red button. And I sort of laughed and said, does this go to the Prime Minister? And the guy said, yes, it does. Mm. And we not touch that one. It was quite young at that. I was quite young and naive back then. <laughs> and some of the travel that I got to do and, and be a part of like the Festival of Pacific Arts and those sorts of things were huge highlights for me. The learnings came with the experience and the fact that I worked for two independent magazines that had almost no budget and really had to hustle to get those publications out every month or every two months. With small teams, we had to, you know, have multiple diverse skill set and a lot of the time our roles would cross over ridiculously. And so it was Again, another learning experience that had a mixture of some really fabulous, exciting things, but also helped me to realise what I did and didn't want to do within the journalism space. And I think it's often only by doing a role or a variety of roles, it sounds like for you, that you realise which ones do really give you energy. Actually, you're at your best in them and which ones maybe are not so much your space. So great learning. Yeah. And I, while I was working for both of those publications, I was still freelancing on the side. So I was doing uh, communication storytelling work for other people. I was doing strategy. I was a freelance photographer for a number of different places. I was building my art career um, and my international exhibition career. There was a lot of other things that I was also doing while working those full-time jobs and building up that skill set and that experience and the contacts. And When I got to the point of realising it was time for me to leave my second role 
and I was a deputy editor. So I thought, well, I'm 25 or I started when I was 25. So I was about 27, 28 by then. And I sort of thought, I don't really know what to do next. Like once you've become an editor, what, where do you go? How far up the chain can you go? And um, what I actually learned was that I wanted Ngā over my own life. I wanted to decide what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, who I wanted to work with. I didn't want to have to compromise on certain values or have to do things I didn't really uh, have enjoy or get enjoyment out of. And so at, at quite a young age now, when I look back on it, I decided that I was going to leave and I didn't know what I was going to do next. But I had saved up some advertising commission money and some other money from Mahi that I'd done on the side and decided that I would start my own business. And that's sort of what the next step was. And that's what I've been doing since. Wonderful. And I think that transition, even though, yes, there were small organisations, but from being employed to then running your own thing, being an entrepreneur, that can be quite a transition. It can be quite difficult for people at some times. How did you find that transition? I think I went into it quite naively, but it was great because I had no fear because I didn't know what there was to fear. So <laughs> I thrived in that space. I just kept pushing and saying, yep, this is what I'm going to do next. And now I'm going to do this and I'm going to meet with these people. And I didn't know or, or realize that, well, what if I don't make any money? What if I can't pay this bill? Because I just had this belief in myself and I guess naivety to the realities of business that everything was going to be okay. And actually it was because I just continued to push. I started my business focused on photography. And the reason why I did that was because that was the easiest opportunity for me to get direct to client business. For my journalism, I had to build up relationships with other editors. For my communications, I had to build up relationships and, and my reputation in the industry with other clients. And even though I had set really strong foundations for that, it was going to take a lot more work. And so I needed some quick cash. And that's where the photography sort of started and took over in the first part of my business. And that's what I marketed um, publicly for a bit while I continued to build up my client base behind the scenes in the communication strategy, uh, freelance journalism, and editorial photography space. And eventually they came together. Some of the key things I learned in those early days was not to do everything. And when I, what I mean by that is I'm really not good at maths, which means I'm really terrible at accounting. And so getting in an accountant early to do that for me was a huge lesson that I'm grateful I listened to myself and went and did that. I also realized that there were parts of my business I could outsource that would help me be more productive. And there were times in my business that I had to learn to say no because it didn't fit with the cope-up of what I was doing. And all of those things are quite hard to realize quite early on in your business venture journey, especially when you're trying to save as much money as you can and not outsource or pay someone else or pay an accountant. But all of these things pay off so much as you're going through. Mm, and I think in running my own business, I recognize many of the same challenges in terms of, <laughs> look, actually, where am I at my best? Where am I really not? Where do I need some help? And actually, what things am I 
is it actually better for me to do? What is it better for me to get some help on? Yeah, great lessons. But as you say, real challenge when you are, you also want to say yes to everything because you're growing and developing your business. But those first times that you say no, I think you realize actually, well, this is my direction. It helps to make it much clearer. And then Kiani, what was the, what was the journey then to creating Nuku? So I had run my business for a number of years and had run it successfully for a number of years. But I I was doing lots of things for other people. I was creating content and telling stories and, and building image libraries and doing strategy for other, other people in their work. And while that was still fulfilling, because I one of my um, key values in my business is that I only want to work with people who have positive social or environmental impact. And so while it was still fulfilling for me and we were doing great change-making work, it was still someone else's work. And I really wanted to create something that I could really feed a lot of my own ideas, a lot of my own values into. And so I created Nuku. Nuku's not a business. It's definitely not a profit making anything. It's cost me so much money to do, but it is a co-papa that I'm hugely passionate about. It started when I was in a very dark point in my life. I had just suddenly lost my grandmother who had helped to raise me. And my husband and I were going through our sixth year of infertility and our 14th year of being together and still not having had a child. And so I was really questioning my own identity, my identity as an Indigenous woman. I was thinking about the loss of my grandmother, which reflected on the loss of a point or a person in my life that I would share stories with, who would share stories with me. And I looked around on social media and it was so fake and it was so inauthentic and it was full of photos of food. And I really wanted to create a platform that championed our Indigenous women, that gave us space for them to share their stories, for others to receive and be inspired and, and informed and moved by their stories. And I also later realized that when I started Nuku, it was also a part of healing for me and healing in that the grief that I was carrying, A, for my grandmother, but also for this child that I hadn't yet had. At the time that I had started Nuku, or when I was thinking about the idea, I fell pregnant with, and so I was bringing into this world another Indigenous woman. And so that only drove me even further to create this kaupapa. I decided straight away that it was going to be 100 women. And after I did 10, I was like, who said it? But it was also an opportunity for me to bring all of the different skills that I had learned over my career so far into one space. I have a audio podcast where I'm interviewing these amazing wahine. I'm able to use my photography skills to do um, creative portraits with each of them. I have an amazing woman on my team, Taylor, who does our behind the scenes video. And so we do create that, but she came on as an intern. And so I was able to use my skills to help mentor someone else and help bring them into the space and support them in their career journey. We have live events. And so that brings in my event management skills and my just ability to talk and not shut up and yell at like lots of big groups of people. Um, so with that as well. And then I'm writing the Nuku book currently, and that book is due to be released in October this year, and it will feature all 100 of those women, a snippet of each of these stories and all of their portraits. And it's the first book that I've written myself. I've contributed to a number. And it's 
again, it's just really great for me in this time of my career to be able to utilize and use and showcase all of those different skills for myself. But the most important thing about Nuku is the the movement that we're creating and these amazing, phenomenal Indigenous women, their stories and the impact that their stories are having, not only on other Indigenous women, but they're having them on so many different sectors of our community. We have so many men who listen now. We have families who listen on their way to school. And so it's, I'm really seeing how much these change makers are creating change with this movement. Mm, wonderful. And you're giving them a platform to do so. It's, I think you talked about it's kind of amplifying their voices. Yeah, it's definitely amplifying their voices. And one of the things I learned about myself and reflecting on what I do as a storyteller or who I am as a storyteller, someone said to me, what is your mal? And in Samoan, the Samoan language, mal is what is your purpose or you know, what is it that you do? And I managed to get it down to one sentence. I amplify the voices of marginalized people so I can change the narrative for future generations. And that's really what I do in every element and every aspect of my career. I'm amplifying the voices of those who don't often get the opportunity to be amplified because they are the ones who have the most amazing stories and their stories will help change the narrative for our future generations so that our children grandchildren and the seven generations in front of us will have a much different world that they're living in where they're not the off stream, they're the mainstream. And that's really important to me. And I can hear I can hear that wonderful passion coming through for you. And in, in all your interviews of incredible Indigenous Wahine, what are some of the qualities that you've really noticed or maybe some of the themes that have come through? One of our Nuku women said to me, Oh, you should interview this one, this this person. She's so a Nuku woman. And I said to her, she's so a Nuku woman? Like, what do you mean by that? And she said, oh, she's honest. She's got integrity. She's authentic. She cares about our environment. She cares about other people. And I hadn't really put that in writing. I hadn't written a criteria for what a Nuku woman should be. I sort of get nominations come through or these women that I've admired over the years or I've seen them somewhere or I've heard about them and I chose them and we interview them and I didn't have a set criteria but when she said to me oh that person is a nuku woman I thought actually every one of these women has integrity and authenticity and a drive and a kaupapa driven and they are really conscious of the effect that they're having in society and on the environment. They are really clear in who they are, even if they don't know who they are. And they, so they're really clear about knowing what they do and don't know about themselves, where they are, how they feel. They are women who are passionate. They are caring. And all of these things are across every single one of these women. <laughs> And I didn't really realize that. And I'm, what am I now? 60, 67 deep. <laughs> and I'm sort of going, oh, yeah, <laughs> they all have these characteristics. But I think those are also true characteristics of Indigenous wahine. They're all very, they're all very open is one thing that I admire about each of them. Some of them are extremely knowledgeable and extremely knowledgeable in 
our tikanga and our histories, or extremely knowledgeable about the industries that they're working in, extremely knowledgeable about the mahi that they do. And I'm, I so admire that. They are all very much, I guess, just wonderful people. <laughs> and sometimes you meet people that are nice, but these women are deeply caring and deeply thinking about how they impact the world, even when they themselves might feel that they're not worthy of being a nukuwahine or feel that their impact is not very big, if that, if that even makes sense. So they mm. have a passion to make a deep impact, but they don't necessarily recognize that they're already doing it. That's a nice way to put it. Yes, super. And how wonderful for you to kind of be able to reflect now and see all that coming through and see some of those wonderful qualities emerging and then other people being able to, I guess, absorb some of those qualities as well by listening or watching some of the stories as they come to life. And we've talked a bit about, I guess, women and some of the qualities that that they might bring. If For yourself, as you look back on your career, have there been any particular challenges or barriers that you've experienced as a woman? In my career, I guess a lot of factors have come into play in the challenges or discrimination that I face, and it's not just because I'm a woman. Being a woman has been one of them, but being an Indigenous woman has been, that's been deeper than just being a woman. Being an Indigenous woman from South Auckland has been a challenge, and being an Indigenous woman from South Auckland who is young has been an even bigger challenge and it's the way in which you're treated in this industry sometimes and because it can be there are parts of this industry that can be quite clicky I guess is the word where you know who you know and you're in the cool kids or you're not (laughs) and so there's there's part of that but I found the way that I was treated by some men in the industry was that they were almost threatened by my skill or by my passion and drive or by the fact that I would just make an opportunity if I could see one and not wait for someone else to make it for me. And I once had a male photographer say to me, oh, look at you and your little digital camera. Oh, and just being a real arsehole, to be honest. And when I unpacked that, it wasn't just because I was a woman. He was looking at me as a young Indigenous female who was very driven, and he felt threatened by that. And so the only way that he could get one up on me was to make me feel very small. So I've never lost opportunities because I was a woman, but I've often been spoken down to. I've often been dismissed in spaces. And this was probably early on in my career. As I've gotten older, I don't allow people to speak down to me and I don't allow people to dismiss me and I make myself very present in a space. But that has come with age and experience and a little bit of wisdom. And it's interesting, isn't it? You said kind of felt threatened and and in that way used perhaps words, comments to try and make you feel small and to try and um, minimise you. But in some ways it's had the opposite effect for you. In fact, that it's probably made you stronger and, and more or and have more desire to take up a bit more space. Yeah, and I think I've always been quite a strong-headed person, but I've always often felt a little bit like an imposter in some spaces, and especially when you're in a new space. So when I started my business, I felt like an imposter because I'd never run a business before. When I moved into the photography industry more full-time, I felt like an imposter because I hadn't studied photography 
when I had launched Nuku, I felt like an imposter because I had never created a platform like that before and I hadn't done broadcasting before. And so there's been definitely been times in my career where I've had serious imposter syndrome and I have questioned myself, am I good enough? Am I, can I do this? Am I going to fit in this space? While at the same time, still doing it. So it didn't stop me from doing anything. It just maybe held me back a little bit at the beginning of starting something new. And once I got my feet in and felt a bit better, then the headstrong Kiani came out and was like, that's it. No one's stopping me. I'm already here. I don't care what you think. Get to the back of the line. (laughs) Yeah, great. And I think I like the way you talked about maybe having some of those doubts, but actually not really letting them stop you, not getting too much in in your way. I wanted to change tack a little bit, Kiani, and just thinking about your introduction, you talked about being, or in your introduction, I talked about you being a social activist. And I know you've been involved for a number of years at Ihu Matau. How did you get involved there? The kaupapa at Ihu Matau, or the the whenua, the Fenua issue at Ihumatau has been part of my entire life. Just because in the last couple of years it's it's become a bit more headline news with recent action happening on the Fenua, my family, my tupuna, have been fighting for the protection of Ihumatau my entire life and before that. This is where my tupuna are from. This is where both of my grandparents have whakapapa to. And I was born and raised here in Ihumatau. It's my home. I currently live here. And when you think about the history of Ihumato, the sewage ponds, the quarrying of our moan, the uh, impact that an industry has had in a roundup, you think of all of these outside effects happening here to the people of Ihumato. When the Fenua, the Fenua that everybody now knows about <laughs> here in Ihumato was being sold, and there was a development plan for 480 houses. Myself and five of my cousins decided that actually enough was enough. We had gone through our lives listening to the sorrow and sadness of our grandparents talking about what they once had and what they no longer had. We saw that our parents were not able to experience what they should have rightfully been able to experience in and around this papakainga. We saw the degradation and desecration of our land, our water, our airspace. In in essence, our identity and our culture, you know, Ihumato was here before all of these other parts of Auckland encroached on us. And so it was a stake in the ground for the six of us to say, enough is enough. Not only is it enough for our people, but actually it's enough for wider than that because this is a historical landscape. It has archaeological, cultural, historical significance, and it is a space that should be preserved for, again, the next seven generations. And so the the whawhai or the campaign to stop the development here at Ihumatau started at my kitchen table over dinner with myself and my cousins, and we led that campaign uh, what's going into six years now. It has been a huge or had a huge impact on our lives and has had a huge impact on our identities and on our, for many of us, our careers and our relationships. However, we are only holding the baton right now, and so many people held it before us 
they just weren't headline news. And so it's really important for us to always acknowledge and remember that we are just continuing to protect the humata. We didn't start the protection of the humata. We're just continuing that. And what we want to do is stop it at us so that our children can thrive in this space and so that they can create beautiful, social, environmentally sustainable spaces, initiatives, social enterprises, looking after the whenua for the benefit of everybody else's tamariki and mukapuna. And so they're no longer in fight mode, but they're in complete thriving mode. And that's really what we're trying to do in this particular space while we hold the baton right now. While I talk about being a social activist, a lot of people associate my social activism only with ihumata, but everything I do is social activism. Nuku is social activism. The fact that I only work with organizations who have positive social environmental impact is social activism. And I think we all need to think about what social activism means because it's not necessarily standing in front of a building, holding a placard, doing a hikwe, marching, um, standing you know, in front of police lines. That's not just activism as how we run our businesses, who we choose to spend our money with how we choose to engage with people, all of that social activism. And it's something that anybody and everybody can do. And I think it's something that we should all be thinking about and how we impact society with our choices and with our decisions. Wonderful. I wanted to ask, as you look back at your career today, what have been some of your proudest career moments? I've won a number of awards throughout my career and they themselves haven't necessarily been highlights because I don't do what I do for awards. They've been really, it's been really beautiful and really wonderful to be acknowledged by your industry peers or industry leaders for journalism and for photography and for social activism and to have, to receive awards. However, the highlight is that when you do receive an award, more people get to know about who you are, which means you're able to spread what you're doing further and you're able to work with more people to help create more impact. And so that, while the awards themselves haven't necessarily been the highlight, the effect of winning awards has been a huge highlight for me. I have really loved Nuku. And while I talk about Nuku not being a business and not making any money at all, (laughs) it is a huge highlight because it is something that I have bled, sweated, and, and cried lots of tears over. And it is a beautiful collection of the most amazing women I have been so privileged to meet that I can guarantee no matter what I do next, this will always be one of the greatest highlights of anything I've ever been able to do. To be able to work with the team that I'm working with, the most amazing group of women who, again, have such a passion for this kaupapa and are feeding themselves into it as well. The team that I get to work with, the woman that I get to make, the mahi that I get to do, the diverse types of storytelling that I'm so privileged to be able to create has definitely meant that this will go down in history as (laughs) as one of the greatest bits of work I was ever able to create. So those I think are probably my main highlights, but my greatest success is my daughter. And I say that to everybody who asks me, what are your career highlights? Because actually my career is just my career. It's what I do that make me the money, pay my bills. And the bits that I do that don't make me the money feed my soul. 
But the greatest thing that I've ever done is grow my child. And so Hayatati Kapua is by all means the best highlight I could ever ask for. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And I think your career is just one part of your life, isn't it? And gosh, raising children is absolutely, it's work as well as joy. So I think to include that as one of your highlights feels feels very appropriate. And one last question, Kiane, love to hear what advice, particularly career advice, would you have for other women? Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid to take the leap. Stop being afraid to make the decision. Just do it. I, it's very much a Nike <laughs> reference there, but it's true. You do it. And I think when you're afraid, you don't do it 100%. You hold yourself back and you take really cautious steps and you don't fulfill the potential that you have. Whereas if you go in 100%, give it your all and make it work and release that fear, then you will create greatness. And I'm very much a believer that my life is tupuna driven. And for some people, they believe their life is God driven and and some people believe their life is fate driven. Or For me, it's tupuna driven. It is my tupuna who guide me to where to go next and you have to listen out for those tohu. So it doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe is helping to guide your life, the key to that is listening and learning about the tohu, the symbols or the signs that they or it or whatever sends you. And that's how I make a lot of my business decisions. And I don't think a business manager or a business sort of support person would recommend that you just follow signs (laughs) in the world. But if you're... If you're the kind of person who does that, do it. Because your gut, especially as women, our gut feelings really tell us what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you have to trust your gut. Because as wahine, we're very magical in that sense. (laughs) That we are very powerful and that our guts know which way is the right way, what's good and what's not, what feels right and what doesn't feel right. And so rather than worrying about fear, trust in your gut. Trust in yourself, trust in your skills, take the leap and go for it 100% because there's no point in living this very short life that we have and being miserable and being unhappy and wishing you'd done something different. Wonderful, wonderful advice. And I think, you know, recognizing that for a lot of us, there is, there might be fear going on at certain points in time that might be holding us back. But to kind of be able to push you that, to take that leap and taking that action, probably that's the best way to overcome that fear. Kenny, that's wonderful advice. And thank you so much for sharing your story today of all the different elements of your career. It's, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Thank you.